Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Yeah, what can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. There is a free wireless internet signal all across North America and nobody has figured out how to use it. It's like the force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. No, I, I would imagine Jim Balsillie probably wasn't a, a Star Wars fan, but Jim Balsillie was uh, a powerhouse for sure in turning research in motion in the BlackBerry into what it was. Now, Glenn Howerton plays Jim Balsillie uh, in BlackBerry. Jay Baruchel plays Mike Lazaridis. There was Matt Johnson in there as well as uh, Douglas uh, Fregan, who's an interesting character in this story. It is a pretty wild story. The meteoric rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. So April 23rd, 6 p.m., Globe Cinema. It's the Alberta premiere of BlackBerry, part of the Calgary Underground Film Festival. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Matthew Miller, a screenwriter and producer on the film BlackBerry. Matthew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I had an opportunity to, to watch the film uh, last night, and it's it's pretty wild. It's I mean, it's funny, it's dramatic, it's it's very well told. But let's talk about what grabbed you. Why did you want to tell this story, first of all? It's a great question. You know, the, the book was actually brought to us by uh, by Canadian producer Nee Fishman, um, who, who had the option on it, and he approached uh, my collaborator Matt Johnson and myself about it. Which honestly, at first we thought it, it was sort of an incongruent uh, match with, with our past work, and you know, we kind of couldn't. We we knew we didn't want to tell sort of like a, a paint by numbers, you know, your your conventional uh, biopic or tech startup story. And we were trying to find something. Uh, that we could connect to a little bit in the material. And, and the more research we, we did and the more we sort of learned about these three main guys and their dynamic and um, their sort of individual relationships and how they worked as a, as a, as a group, um, it really became relatable to us. And we started to see our, ourselves in these guys and mm-hmm. really, you know, the idea of a tech startup or trying to do anything as, as a young person, working with your friends, um, it was it was basically like us trying to start a film production company when, when we got out of film school and, and trying to figure out how to do that. And then you have some success. And how do you navigate that? Um, and how do you continue to grow and collaborate? And so suddenly, I mean, we're obviously telling the story of research motion in the BlackBerry, but it felt very personal to us. It felt like we were in a way telling our, our own origin story. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective on it. Now, you know, it, it, it is a, a serious story in, in some respects, um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of humor in, in the telling of the story. Where do you go about it? How do you go about finding humor in, in subject matter like this? Uh, it's a great question. You know, we always talk about um, human nature and just um, like, like we, we love, you know, people watching, just talking about people, just meeting people because everybody's so unique uh, and interesting. And, you know, I think when we watch films and TV and we're like, oh, that was really great or, or that felt so real. What we're really picking up on is like, oh, that I recognize that behavior. That was real human behavior. That actor is actually behaving like a human being. Um, and so for us, like 
we find everything funny in, in everyday love, life, much to the chagrin of some people around us. Uh, so sometimes, you know, we've had many experiences in movie theaters where we're laughing at something that we think is hilarious and people will turn around and ask us to be quiet because they don't think it's that funny. But to us, just like, like our existence is funny. Every day is, is, there, there's comedy. And so I don't think we were ever actively trying to, like, inject the script with jokes or write jokes in there um, or do things on set specifically because they were funny, we, we really tried to understand these guys and their very nature. And then, you know, maybe sometimes we would heighten something or, or put some, somebody in maybe uh, a funny situation. But, you know, we definitely don't try to, like, write gags or, or jokes. That, that's not how, how we go about it. We try to find, like, the truth and then try to see, well, what's funny about this situation? You know, yeah. what's funny about having to go to the biggest picture of your life and forgetting the prototype in the, in the car, right? You could play that like like straight and serious as death, but to us, that's really funny, right? Yeah, um, and, and a lot of that rests, you know, the shoulders of these two leads. And Glenn Howerton and Jay Baruchel, you know, both have a comedy background, but, mm-hmm. you know, these are such unique characters, and so much of the story is about, you know, the differences between the two. They're like night and day in so many ways, and just that dynamic. It, it's a really fascinating relationship here, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, we were so thrilled to, uh, to get to work uh, with those guys, our, our entire cast, really. But, you know, we tried very deliberately with, you know, um, Glenn and Jay to, to part of the reason we want to cast them is because they do have such a strong comedy background. And that is what they are best known for. And so audiences, I think, will come to the film and, and be expecting something from these guys and maybe be a little bit surprised at sort of the depth and the 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 range that they have and, and where they go with their performances um, because, you know, I'd argue as the film moves on, it does, uh, the, the, the weight kind of takes over and, and maybe there are a few less jokes and, and, and hopefully audiences start to feel something as they're watching this journey. Um, but we definitely like the idea of working with comedic actors and trying to get them to, you know, sort, sort of play it a little bit straighter than, than maybe they do in some of their other work. It's interesting because, you know, I mean, you know, Blackberry itself was kind of an underdog story, but, you know, there's there's that Canadian element too. this this ragtag group of nerds uh, at, that started RIM as, as this tiny little Canadian company and then, you know, became this Canadian tech giant up against mm-hmm. some some really big global tech giants. That is, I think, you know, it maybe might resonate a different way with Canadian audiences, that side of the story. For sure. I mean, I, I think. The fact that Matt and I were able to make this movie, you know, speaks to the fact that that Hollywood hadn't scooped up this IP yet. You know, obviously, right now we're in sort of this era of what are being sort of called the the brand films, you know, and our films being lumped in with the Tetris movie or the Air Jordan movie or or, or whatever, which is you know quite flattering to us because those are much bigger yeah. uh, movies in terms of you know the, the budget size um, and, and things like that. Um, and so for us, the fact that this was a Canadian story was definitely part of the selling point for us to tell this story. You know, we, we sort of wear our um, Canadian flags on our sleeves and, and are, are quite patriotic and, and, you know, have made a very concerted effort to stay in Canada, live in Canada, work in Canada, and want to continue to do that. Um, and we think of BlackBerry as like the absolute best that Canada can do and, and can offer. You know, they're a bit of an afterthought now, and sometimes they're a bit of a punchline, but you know, that's only because they had such insane success so quickly and really launched this entire marketplace, as uh, as Mike says in the film. Yeah. So, you know, I think to look back on, on Raymond Blackberry and call them a failure is is unfair to them. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's true. And I mean, you know, but the guys who started the company are, are worth tons and tons of money. So I, I don't think they think of themselves as failures either. And oh, obviously they true. created something, you know, uh, lasting and, and, and indelible. 
But as, as you watch the story unfold, and we kind of know how it ends, but maybe not all the details of how it got there, but it, it leaves that lingering question, like, did it have to go that way, right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, these guys were kind of victims of their own success or maybe, sure. uh, you know, bit off more than they can chew. I mean, as, as you go through telling this story and you look back on it, I mean, was it inevitable that, you know, Apple and, and you know, those, those big tech giants were going to win this fight? Or could it have gone differently for BlackBerry? I think it could have. You know, what's so interesting is that, you know, I, I think sort of like the the Cliff Notes version of this story to most people is like, oh, Apple came and ate their lunch and the iPhone sort of took over. But yeah. iPhone launched in 2007 and BlackBerry continued to sell like re- really well for years following that. And it, it wasn't actually until a few years after the release of iPhone that the company really started to go downhill. But what's so what I found so interesting during the research for it is part of what Apple was doing, it was, it was literally the exact opposite of how BlackBerry built their business model. You know, the BlackBerry really started as a device for business people, for people who wanted to be tethered mm-hmm. uh, to their desks at all times, their email at all times. Uh, and, and Apple obviously saw that, but they also saw a much bigger market with kind of the general consumer and wanting to get these things in everybody's hands and everybody kind of being addicted to their phones. And so, you know, their big thing was partnering with uh, the telecommunication companies to sell data and to start these data plans. And, you know, BlackBerry was still kind of thinking about phones as, you know, selling one minute at a time and, and, and being about that. So, you know, they just didn't see what Apple saw. And everything about BlackBerry was about shrinking the data and, and trying to make it um you know, small package that could be transferred very easily so that it wouldn't clog up the networks. And Apple was like, oh, we actually want to clog up the networks. We're going to build bigger, faster networks, and then we're going to charge our customers for using their data, right? Which is basically the the, the business model that we have now. So I don't know what RIM could have done to to see the writing on the wall, but, but it was sort of a conflict of their very model because the BlackBerry by design was smaller, smaller, smaller. And everything about iPhone was bigger, bigger, bigger. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what they could have done. It would have helped if Jim wasn't trying to buy a hockey team. <laughs> yeah, time. an interesting part of this story, too. Uh, the film was called BlackBerry, What a Wild Ride. Uh, the Alberta premiere, BlackBerry, it's uh, April 23rd, so just a few days, uh, 6 o'clock, the Globe Cinema, part of the Calgary Underground Film Festival. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much, Rob. And I'm coming out to Calgary uh, with uh, our cinematographer, Jared Rabb, for this training. So uh, hope to see you. And Q&A uh, uh, as well. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. So l- looking forward to being there. I've never been to Calgary. So, well, there you uh, go. Yeah. Well, we'll welcome you to the town. CalgaryUndergroundFilm.org. Matt, thanks again. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Matthew Miller, uh, writer, producer of BlackBerry. We're back with more right after this. It's been just over a year since the convoy protest descended on the nation's capital and, and popped up elsewhere. And, of course, it's just over a year since the prime minister decided to invoke the Emergencies Act to make it all go away. Much has been said and written about all of that during all of it and since then. And I suppose history will help shape how we look back on what was a significant moment in Canadian history. There's a new book out on all of this that has a different approach here. As Paul Wells writes, what could I bring to this strange episode that few observers had tried? I chose empathy. I tried to listen to everyone and understand what this unprecedented situation was like for them all. Uh, the end result is a new book called An Emergency in Ottawa, the story of the convoy commission. Joining us on the line is 
the book's author, award-winning author and journalist, Paul Wells. Paul, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for shining a light on my book, Rob. I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting. We're just over a year removed from from all of this. And in some ways, it feels like uh, very recent and also at the same time, maybe much longer than that. But are we far enough removed from what happened, Paul, that we can kind of grasp the significance or historical significance of this? I mean, how big was it? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's very much an open debate. And um, uh, one of the quirks of my book is that I don't actually try and persuade the reader either way mm-hmm. what the, that that the uh, Emergencies Act was properly used or improperly used. I figured, um, I, I was amazed, within several days after Judge Rulo brought his report down, uh, the debate absolutely, uh, all the air went out of that debate. Uh, there's, there's simply nobody in the mood to argue th- that anymore. And so what I tried to do was... Um, uh, point out uh, all the other things that were going on in, in the commission, all the other uh, smaller debates that uh, that that it raised, and and uh, also very much what an odd moment it was in the history of our Canadian society. Yeah, uh, when that convoy happened, um, everybody was exhausted, everybody was pushed to the wall, uh, nobody was in a mood for um, uh, compromise or listening to people who. Uh, live different lives from the kind of lives they led, and, and and this is what we got. That's the story I try to tell. How much do you think has changed since then, too? I mean, you know, I still see, you know, people with, with Canadian flags flying on their pickup truck, I assume, uh, you know, with some some kind of solidarity with the convoy movement. There's still, you know, some degree of maybe vaccine scolding or mass scolding out there, but I don't know. It kind of feels like a, a lot of Canadians have kind of moved on from all of this. Do you think we have? Yeah, um, the uh, there are still people in Ottawa here in Ottawa uh, who drive around with masks or with sorry with um, with uh, very much without masks and with mm-hmm. you know flags and and F Trudeau uh, stickers and signs and so on, uh, but there really aren't a lot of them. And the few attempts that have been made over the last year to try and rekindle the spirit of the convoy absolutely fizzled. Um, I, on the other side, I think that there is a bit of a constituency among the people who absolutely supported restrictions, absolutely supported vaccination, and were very angry at the convoy while it was here to say, um, maybe for all that, uh, there were reasons why this uh, uh massive up, up uprising happened and maybe there are lessons that can be applied uh f- for a next time mm-hmm. um I, i'm not going to say that uh you know huge chunks of the population have changed their mind but when i kind of tentatively point out that maybe some of those restrictions caused more of a pushback than they uh than they were part of a solution uh i'm surprised by how many folks like me say eh, you might have a point there it's interesting. And I mean, it, it kind of gets to the approach you took in this book. And it's it's tricky to do because of how diametrically opposed maybe those two sides are, how divisive all of this was. But to take an empathetic approach, to choose empathy, to try to hear all sides, is is that doable? Yeah, I I, um, I, I found myself putting myself in the place of Judge Rouleau. Who I don't know from Adam. Uh, right. You know, he's an experienced judge. Uh, um, s- seemed like a kind of a soft-spoken guy, but um, simply watching him uh, week after week in the co- in the commission, 
he was the only one who just had to sit there and listen to everyone. And uh, uh, honestly, that's the way his report reads, is here's what the protesters said. Uh, I think they're kidding themselves on part of it. I think that they uh, weren't uh, sufficiently sympathetic to the people whose lives they were disrupting. But here's why they did it. And, you know, uh, in some ways they have a point. And then he does the same thing. He, he describes an Ottawa police service that was an absolute mess, but he doesn't really rake them over the coals because I think he gets that they they arrived here as a mess. They, they had a pre-existing condition and it wasn't the particular fault of the particular people. It's just there's a system that needs fixing. And th that sort of non-punitive approach uh, really appealed to me. Uh, certainly it would, it would be a refreshing change of pace because during the convoy, Everybody wanted to ram their debating points down down the other side's throat, mm -hmm. and I thought, uh, if if nothing else, I can uh, write the book different from how we all lived the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you alluded to you know the the sort of a f Trudeau nature of of a lot of this, but you know at the same time, I mean, you know. Trudeau himself perhaps bears some responsibility. And, and you talk about in, in the book how this did become politicized or, or maybe the liberals saw this as a wedge issue, a winning issue in, in that campaign just a few months before the convoy. Uh, look, there's a lot of blame to go around for what happened here, but how much rests at the feet of the prime minister? Certainly uh, his share of it. I, I, I'm, I'm more interested by... The fact that at the end of this, uh, I, I quote at length from a press conference he gave uh, just before they they raised um, the provisions of the Emergencies Act, where he actually sounds like he might have been rethinking some of this, and mm -hmm. that uh, excluding somebody from your life, he, he talked about it in personal terms, family terms, but what he says essentially is that excluding somebody from your life because they have a different position on vaccines from you is uh, maybe not a, a, a bright thing to do. And I'm uh, almost more fascinated by the hints he gave that he had done some of that thinking himself than by trying to relitigate the thing. And I'm super fascinated by this guy, Joel Lightbound, right. who was a Quebec City uh, liberal MP, and not just another liberal MP, but very much a rising star in the Liberal Party, and absolutely 100% uh, Team Trudeau. In the middle of all this, he gives a press conference and says, we're, we're dividing instead of uniting. We're running on confrontation instead of conciliation. Uh, we are ignoring the reasonable questions that people have about our policy. And uh, it, it's making us govern badly. I mean, it was, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating moment. And, 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 and a bunch of the smaller moments like that are what I decided to highlight in this book. In terms of, you know, sharing the, the story or, or trying to better understand, to put people in, in the shoes of those who were part of the convoy or supported the convoy, uh, that's a tricky thing to do. I mean, in polls at the time suggested there was not a lot of public sympathy uh, for the convoy, but at the same time, there was some growing frustration maybe with some of these restrictions or pandemic measures. Why do you think it's important to to understand things from their side or why they were there in the first place? Uh, because they had a lot of company around the world, because there had been an, a large number of precursor events to suggest that this wasn't uh, a kind of a freak occurrence. And and because I don't need, uh, you know, somebody that I'm writing about or, or, or dealing with in society 
to agree with me down the line mm-hmm. in order for me to find what they have to say interesting. And and what Judge Rulo heard at the at the at the commission was, uh, these protesters were were far from monolithic. They actually, uh, in many cases, including at the senior leadership level of the of, of the convoy, basically didn't know one another, disagreed on fundamentals, uh, uh, in some cases openly sabotaged each other's work as they tried to pursue different ends. But to the extent they were united, they were united by. Uh, frustration with the situation and very much frustration with the sense that uh, the government of Canada didn't want to hear about them. You know, it's interesting. We think about how this maybe all could have been avoided. I guess there's also the question of, you know, could this have been a lot worse than it was if some of the more extreme elements uh, in these protests had, had gone further, if, you know, the, the uh, folks who were accumulating guns at Coots had carried through on their plans or conversely, as you note in the book, yeah. I mean, what if police had given this whole movement a, a, a martyr, you know, somebody shot by police or something? So in a way, I don't know, were we lucky to avoid something much worse? Yeah, as Can- as Canadians often have been. Um uh, I I talk at some length about this guy Corey Huron, uh, who um, a, a member of the military reserve, who uh, drove halfway across the country onto the lawn yeah. of Rideau Hall with uh, four long guns in his uh, back of his truck. Um, fortunately, he didn't really have a plan, but uh, that's the sort of thing that could have turned badly wrong, uh, you know, very easily, um, and. Um, uh, similarly, as as you rightly point out, I'm I'm fascinated by a debate within police circles, which uh, is much more advanced outside Canada and which Canadian public is not paying any attention to, about how precisely a police force should confront a large crowd of demonstrators, and the answer that is gaining ground is, you don't do it the way police did at Ipperwash uh, in Ontario in the early 2000s when an innocent man was uh, shot to death because police decided to go in heavy with no planning and no sense of what they were getting into. Yeah, You, 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 you spend an awful lot more time talking uh, to protesters, uh, gaining their trust, earning their trust by uh, showing some understanding of what it is they are uh, upset about, um, and then trying to uh politely dissuade the ones who can be dissuaded uh you know that that's that's been a far more successful um method of policing large crowds around the world in recent years and uh i think one of the lessons that's been applied internally in the ottawa police is we are way behind the curve on understanding these techniques and we need to we need to up our game uh, if the police had simply done some better traffic management on the first day and denied downtown Ottawa to the to the protesters, this thing would have been over in three days. Um, right. You know, so there's a there's a there's a, a strong element of coulda woulda shoulda. Everything that comes after uh, is a result of the fact that um, uh, the police were overwhelmed from the first hours, and that hundreds of truckers found themselves boxed in by other truckers. Right? Yeah. The guys in the middle couldn't go home. So, um, uh, you know, and that's just a that's just a strange thing that happened. Uh, and 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 so as we saw a couple of weeks later, during the uh, the the convoy, there were attempts to take the center cities of Toronto and Quebec City. And the police did, you know, basic traffic control uh, techniques to make sure that didn't happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean. 
the the I guess one of the basic fascinations this whole situation has for me is that it shows how people make decisions when they're as far as possible from an ideal situation. People were tired, they were scared, they uh, uh, ha had already been arguing with one another over these questions for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating case because it's the farthest thing from a textbook case of how public authorities should be making decisions. It's actually how it really happens, which is usually when you're understaffed, exhausted, you don't really know what's going on, uh, and you're, you're, you, you spend all your time uh, painting caricatures in your head of what the other side must be like, rather than simply walking over and asking them what they are like. It's interesting. And you, you, you point out, I mean, we've seen protest movements in the past or situations that police have had to deal with Ipperwash specifically. There was the I Don't Know More movement. I recall there was the uh, what started as Occupy Wall Street, the Occupy movement, where there are parallels to, to a lot of what happened uh, with the convoy. But in some ways, it was completely and totally new. It was, it was unique. So, you know, the, the next time as we think about what could happen in the future, we're likely to see anything like this again. Um, I have a hard time imagining the convoy reconstituting itself uh, in, in anything resembling what, what we saw before. Uh, uh, police are now on notice that they, are, they're, they're, they need to deny their downtown core to large uh, collections of trucks, uh, you know, for starters, and then on and on again. So I don't think we're going to see anything exactly like this. But in general, look... Um, I talk about these new policing techniques. I've been reading some of the documents that are circulating among uh, uh, police forces in the European Union, in Scandinavian countries, in Germany, in the UK. And one of the things they say is the absolute first rule is differentiate, differentiate, differentiate. When a crowd of people come and they start waving signs and, and shouting slogans, don't assume they're all the same. Mm -hmm. Find the ones who are not sure they're supposed to be there. Find the ones who actually have some respect for authority uh, and keep talking to them. And uh, and that is just, uh, that's what the OPP tried to do, but the Ottawa police didn't try to do until near the end. It's what um, uh, Ottawa City Hall tried to do, trying to find uh, people who were worth talking to among the protesters and the federal government absolutely refused to do. And, uh, uh, I like I, I know some of the pushback I'm going to get among people who here in Ottawa who really hated the the, the convoy. Oh, They're yeah. going to say, "Oh, they were all fascists." And my answer is, eh, "Not all of them." Mm -hmm. And the only way to find out which ones weren't is to is to is to go and say hi. And I I, I hope that there, I hope that there's more room for that kind of spirit the next time there's any kind of confrontation between two segments in our society. Yeah, and I think that's really the story you're trying to tell here. I mean, you know, in terms of those big questions, was the Emergencies Act appropriate or who was right and who was wrong in all of this? I guess, I mean, that's not what you're trying to to decide here. Maybe that's ultimately up to Canadians now. Maybe that's ultimately up, up to history. Yeah, I mean, I only had 100 pages. The format of this book series that I'm contributing to is that these are short books. Mm -hmm. um, I decided to try to make it feel like a bigger book, paradoxically, by ignoring that central debate. Uh, you know, if I'd, if I'd written essentially a legal brief on whether the uh, Emergencies Act was used properly, uh, it would have impressed a couple of political scientists right. here in Ottawa. But it would have been useless. 
And what I'm trying to say is there was actually a lot going on. And so I'm going to, I'm going to flick at all those different elements. Um, and uh, maybe there'll be something there that sticks in people's head for the next time there's trouble. Well, it's called an emergency in Ottawa, the story of the Convoy Commission. Uh, much more at SutherlandHouseBooks.com. Paul Wells, thank you so much for joining us here today. I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. There you go. It's a veteran journalist, award-winning author Paul Wells. His uh, latest book, again, it's called An Emergency in Ottawa. Hey, thanks for being with us here on this Thursday afternoon. we got a lot more to get to here today, but I do want to turn our attention to the debate around spanking or corporal punishment and whether it's something that we should tolerate as a society. I think views have shifted uh, over the years or over the decades. I think spanking is a lot less common than it once was, but it is still permitted. Section 43 of the Criminal Code of Canada is one of the sections that carves out what is legal. Typically, the Criminal Code lays out what is illegal. But Section 43 of the Criminal Code is essentially the legal justification for spanking. As it reads, every school teacher, parent, or person standing in the place of a parent is justified in using force by way of coercion toward a pupil or child, as the case may be, who was under his care, if the force does not exceed what is reasonable under the circumstances. Now, there have been a couple of attempts, and there was one currently before the Senate, but a couple of attempts in Ottawa to change this or to repeal Section 43, which is what Bill S-251 would do. There was a recent poll showing that there is still division, but a majority of Canadians do believe that this exception should be abolished. 51% of Canadians, according to a February poll by the company Research Co., Well, our next guest says, yes, that law needs to go. Spanking should not be permitted, and it's time to abolish Section 43. Uh, She's laid this out in a piece she co-authored for The Conversation. It's also uh, in uh, the National Post, nationalpost.com. Dr. Tracy Afifi is a professor, Canada Research Chair in Childhood Diversity and Resilience at the University of Manitoba. Professor Afifi, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Section 43, what is its legal significance then uh, and practical significance when it comes to the practice of, of spanking or corporal punishment? Yeah, so it allows um, adults, parents, caregivers, and uh, even uh, identify school teachers to use what they call reasonable force uh, to correct behavior of children between the ages of, of uh, 2 and 12. Um, there's some restrictions on what can and cannot be do- done. Uh, to those children, but um, essentially what the the section forty three allows is is permission to for us to use uh, physical force to hit our children to spank our children, which we know is a great risk for a lot of developmental and health outcomes uh, across the lifespan. Mm-hmm. So what do we mean or what does the law mean by reasonable? Well, that's part of the problem is that it's it's really hard to understand what the what the law means. Uh, reasonable force. I don't know what that means um, in terms of uh, some of the the guidance that's provided in Section 43 is unclear, and therefore it really allows um, us to use force and and violence against children that that is harmful. Harmful all the time. Yeah, any any violence, any um, hitting, spanking, it really is something that um, 
that research has shown there's evidence out there, uh, hundreds of studies that have been published over the decades that show force on children, whether it's hitting or spanking, um, is harmful to children. It, it's, it has um, implications for their mental health, their physical health, their relationships with their parents, with um, uh, relationships and intimate relationships later on. So it also has uh, harmful effects on substance use and thinking about suicide. So it, it, there, it does increase the risk that these poor outcomes can be seen. Um, not only in childhood, but in adolescence and across the lifespan. So it's, it's a practice that comes with significant risks. Not everyone will experience those risks, but it's increasing the likelihood that these risks could occur for these individuals. Right, and that's the thing. And I mean, I mentioned this poll that shows there's a majority of Canadians who, who believe that the law should be changed, but that same poll found that 61% of Canadians said they were physically disciplined as children. And I would imagine yeah. that, that many of those Canadians feel as though even if they didn't like it, they, they turned out okay. And I'm sure you hear that argument all the time. Yeah, I hear that argument all the time. Um, and so I guess what, what I would say is that we don't have a lot of good data in Canada to really understand trends over time. So we have some data um, the, the certain polls, um, you know, are not nationally representative and, and you know, they're helpful, but um, they, they, they may not be exactly the data that we need to really understand trends over time. But what we do know is that over time, sort of piecing together what data we have, is that we do see that uh, spanking is dec- has decreased over time, which is a good thing. And we're also seeing that people's um, support for spanking has also decreased over time. So there's more people that actually are in support of repealing Section 43 now than there would have been if you did that poll 10 years ago or 20 years ago or what have you. So you can see that that the societal norms are changing in the right direction, to, that we're tolerating less violence against children. So that's really great. We don't have the perfect data to really to determine that. And, you know, you'll hear people say, well, I was spanked as a kid and I turned out fine. Um, for some people, that might be the case. It also might be the, the case that you don't know how you would have turned out if you weren't spanked. Mm-hmm. And you might have, you know, uh, been better off if you hadn't. And what's really important to know that you might be one of those lucky ones that feel like, okay, I was spanked, but, you know, I'm okay. And that's great. I hope that's the case. But the reality is, that's not the case for a lot of people. And we have to know that when a child is spanked or hit, we're increasing the likelihood of so many outcomes that are really negative and, and can be felt across the lifespan. But if spanking is decreasing, you know, the practice is decreasing and, and attitudes are changing, isn't that to say that it will continue to be the case? I mean, isn't spanking kind of slowly phasing itself out here? Well, again, we don't have really good data to know that. Um, And the data that we have, I would estimate, and it's not perfect data, so it's just an estimate that there's still anywhere between, you know, probably about 18 to 43% of Canadians still currently use physical punishment practices. And so that's still, you know, pretty high numbers when you consider how many kids that would translate to. So um, it's good that it's trending in the right direction, but it's still such a large number of children that are being put at risk for having poor outcomes and we're jeopardizing their their safety and their health and their happiness across the lifespan okay so if we change the law what are the implications of that are we now talking about opening up the door to 
uh, you know, arrests and prosecutions of parents who spank. Even if we disagree with spanking, is, is that the way to, to address this? So that is an excellent question, and and I think probably the most important question and discussion to have related to the repeal of Section 43. The answer is absolutely not. It has nothing to do with uh, increasing prosecution or, you know, um, taking children away from families and, and that sort of thing. It, that's not what the repeal of Section 43 would do. What the repeal is, is to, to do is to not prosecute parents, but rather to educate the public and to change this tolerance we have to subject children to violence. And so there's 65 countries around the world that have already repealed um, these kind of laws in their in their codes and in, in their laws in their countries. And Sweden was the first one in 1979. And there's data that shows that after they changed their law, prosecution rates of parents did not increase. And the idea is that we put this in place and we change the culture so that we're not tolerating violence against children. We're educating uh, parents how to use other forms of discipline that are not physical. And we are trying to identify quickly uh, or faster which families might be at risk for, for such behaviors. And we're providing education and support. So again, it's not about prosecuting parents not about putting people in jail it's about educating identifying families that need more help faster and supporting those families and data from other countries will show prosecution rates will do not go up but we can do those things you know without changing the law can't we we can we can and changing the law isn't the only thing that we need to do so if we want to change the culture that accepts violence against children, the research shows that one of the best ways to do that is to repeal the laws. Because if you repeal the law, then we realize, oh, this isn't something that is acceptable. It's not something that I should be doing. If it's in the law, then you think, well, it's okay. I'm protected by the, the Criminal Code of Canada to do this. So it's an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is that we need to we can't tolerate having violence against children. We don't have, we're not able to um, have violence against adults. So we shouldn't be allowed to have violence against children. And so changing the, the law, repealing the law is one of the, the best ways that we can do that. But we also need to educate uh, individuals as to what the law is and why we need to repeal it. And we also need to provide supports for parents. So again, repealing the law does not mean that we no longer discipline children. The word discipline is a very interesting one. It should mean guidance. It doesn't mean physical. So it means we still need to guide our children, but we don't do it with physical means. Now, I mentioned there's a bill before the Senate. I, I believe it's still before the Senate, uh, an attempt to, to repeal Section 43. What's your understanding of, of what's happening on that front? And I guess from that, I mean, what the likelihood is that this is actually going to happen? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's in its second reading uh, now. And um, there's hopefully a lot of momentum uh, to, to make this very important change. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there, this has been a, a discussion point in the past as well. Um, there has been amendments made to Section 43 in the past, a number of years ago. Um, but I think the culture is changing now, and and I think that there is more support for repeal of Section 43 than there ever has been in the past. And, uh, you know, it's our duty to um, be uh, protect our children from the related harms. 
We need to also comply with the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child. And we need to think of not parents' rights, but children have rights too. And they have the right to live free from violence. And we are actually going against the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of the Child by allowing in our law that we that to be able to hit them. So I'm very hopeful that this is something that Canada can catch up to the other 65 countries that have already repealed this. It's not a new idea. It's not, not we're not, you know, the first country to do it. We're actually late to the party. So it's now it would be a wonderful time if we can make this happen. Right. Well, uh, as mentioned, your piece, it's up at theconversation.com, also where we printed uh, at nationalpost.com. Professor Fifi, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Great. Thanks so much. All the best. All right, there you go. That's uh, Tracy Fifi, who's a professor at the University of Manitoba, also Canada Research Chair in Childhood Adversity and Resilience, uh, someone whose uh, main research interest is in the area of child maltreatment, including child abuse, neglect, uh, and physical punishment. So co-authoring this piece, making the case that we do need to change the law. The law remains a problem. Other countries have gone down this path. It's well past time that Canada does as well. And I think she's right that, yes, attitudes over spanking have definitely changed. The practice is far less common than it once was. Do we leave well enough alone and allow that to continue? Or do we need to take uh, more of an interventive approach or interventionist approach rather to really try to to phase out the practice once and for all? She would prefer to do that, she says, through education, not through any kind of uh, law enforcement approach, prosecution, laying of charges, etc. That seems problematic as much as, okay, we understand, all right, if we want to protect children from violence, then that does at times have to mean prosecuting those who commit the violence. But as she says, that's not the path forward here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.